Welcome to the First Impressions Podcast, the official podcast of the Forum of Incident Response and Security Teams. Every month, Chris John Riley and myself, Martin McKay, share informal conversations with security professionals from around the globe. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers alone, and any sarcasm you hear is purely intentional. For more information on FIRST or this podcast, please check out FIRST.org. Welcome to this episode of the First Impressions Podcast. Uh, with this episode, we're joined by Dr. Alan Friedman, who is the Director of Cybersecurity Initiatives at the U.S. Department of Commerce, NTIA. And we're talking a lot about, well, miscellaneous stuff and also SBOM, software bill materials. Thank you. And now we join the interview in progress. I am trying to remember where we met. I feel like I had a plate of mediocre hotel chicken in front of me. That could be anywhere. You're right. You, because we did meet in a hotel. It was an Akamai security event in DC. And we were in the hotel room of the keynote speaker, a woman whose name I don't remember. Um, but Andy had brought me there and you were already in the, in the room. And we, that was the first time you and I met. Oh, wow. Okay. It's funny. Uh, it's funny how we equate meeting people with different types of food. <laughs> I, I seem to remember meeting Martin, and the only thing I can think of is cheap supermarket sushi in Kyoto. I, every time I think of you, Chris, I ca can't help but remember really, really bad green tea in Kyoto. Not drinkable. Not drinkable. I was going to say you guys did Japan differently than I do, but uh... <laughs> it was our first time. It was our first time, or well, my first time in Japan, and I was doing it very much as a, a newbie who didn't know anything or anywhere. So I was like at the conference just, oh, sushi at the supermarket, wonderful, what's the best sushi ever? Which compared with sushi in Europe is the best yeah. sushi ever. So, See, I met Chris when, when my wife and I were walking around the Golden Palace in Kyoto, and she said, you know, there's that guy over there who keeps looking at you and pointing. Uh, do you know who he is? And I'm like... Uh, a stalker i don't know and that was that was how we met spent that day and, and many others since uh talking and and doing the podcast so enough of behind baseball yeah i mean in my defense you were the largest person in japan at that time right you were way taller than everyone else and it was very hard not to see you so i'm sorry i was staring because godzilla yeah exactly you looked like a freak so and that's got nothing to do with height, though. No, I think exactly. <laughs> so this is the First Impressions podcast. The reason why we reached out to you is because right now, something you've been talking about at first is very, very time, not time sensitive, but it's timely. That's the word I'm looking for. Software bill materials. You've been talking about that at various first conferences. You've been involved in it for, what, three or four years now? Mm -hmm. And... How can we understand what a software bill of materials is and how would a hacker understand it? So I guess the easiest way to ask this is I like the analogy of a list of ingredients, right? You go to the store and you buy a Twinkie, comes with a list of ingredients. And yet the software that we have that's running our world, we don't seem to spend too much time caring about what's inside it. And so the basic idea behind a software bill of materials is say, let's have a shared vision 
about what transparency looks like so that we actually can communicate this is what my soft this is what's in my software I would have to push back on that because anybody who actually eats Twinkies does not care about what's in them and does not care about what horrible things it's going to do to their body. Well, you know, it's a fun example, which is, right, Twinkies contain tallow. And so there are two things there. First, you have to know that tallow is, in fact, beef fat. And we can get into the challenge of disambiguating names. But more importantly... Some of us may say, you know, Martin's approach, which is, hey, if I'm willing to eat a Twinkie, I certainly don't care about beef fat. But of course, that's not true. We all know vegetarians. We all know people who have dietary restrictions or food allergies. And the list of ingredients doesn't say you can't have a Twinkie. It's about empowering people to make the risk-based decision that's right for them. And that's really the vision here is to say, you know what, there are going to be times when this level of software or having this approach is just fine. And there are other times where we really want to drill deep into what's in it. Is it vulnerable? Who is using? Who wrote these components? And all sorts of information that we want to sort of drill in. And just as a list of ingredients doesn't necessarily tell me, is this thing healthy? It gives me some of the tools that, that I can go look up from third-party data sources or I can do my further research to determine, is this the sort of thing that I want to put in my network? I mean, I guess the, the question that immediately springs to my mind is how, how many levels deep are you going to go on this, right? So you, you could quickly get into that scenario of this application I'm selling you that you're going to run in your network runs Java, but it also runs Tomcat. And Tomcat also runs XYZ. And these also rely on XYZ libraries, right? And you start to get to that point where this simple bill of materials, the simple ingredients list, everything in that ingredients list has a subset of ingredients, which has a subset of ingredients. And then one of the things you mentioned was who wrote that? And when it comes to open source, there's thousands of people who may have written to that library. That individual line, this comma here was added by this person on this date. How, how deep can you get in this software bill of materials in this ingredients list? So this is, this is exactly the sort of question that we're asking ourselves now. And the good news is, so first people say, well, isn't that a lot of data? Especially if you're you know, looking at a modern operating system or even an RTOS where you've got components with components, components. Uh, on the other hand, we're dealing with computers. Computers can handle data. Right, that's kind of one of the things they're good at. So I'm okay as long as we have some basic data management models. And one of those is going to be, hey, what should I care about? Now again, transparency is the starting point, but if you care about certain things, well then having that data now allows you to do further due diligence. So for example, let's use open source, right? As you point out, could be anyone. And for many people, that's fine, right? This is a large project, it's got a lot of people looking at it, so we feel confident, right? This is the the classic with many eyeballs, all bugs are shallow, which we know really isn't true. But you know, for first approximation, many of us will trust a widely used open source project that has a responsive security team over you know, something that's written by a couple of contractors. But one of the things that we can do is we can start to say, hey, let me look at the pattern of commits. Is this a line of code that was signed with a developer key that no one's ever seen before? or was signed with a developer key that was used in a wildly different set of projects. Well, then maybe if I really care about this project and what the supply chain is, I'm going to do a little more due diligence on that side of things. 
or maybe it was written by a university that was intentionally putting <laughs> in uh, a vulnerability so that they could find them later, uh, which never <laughs> happened. And on your, on your Twinkie um, analogy, I kind of think that IoT, the Internet of Things, and is kind of the Twinkie of our world of being useless junk food, but it's something where so many companies want to have an actual product out soon as cheaply as possible, as quickly as possible. And they're relying on a series of, of underlying libraries that nobody is maintaining or that got written once and nobody has ever given a security review because that would cost money. And the whole point is to use those products as cheaply as possible. Oh, and, and with IoT, we don't even have to go that far down our dependency graph. So there's a woman at NTT Labs, uh, Asuka Nakajima. She's had to build a machine learning model that looks at different internet cameras because even though they're slightly different, they're all white boxed under different names, but they all have the same firmware and they all have the same software. So if there's a vulnerability in one of them, you wouldn't know because it was sold under a different name. And this is where actually tracking software versions and firmware versions is absolutely necessary for doing the minimum basics of vulnerability management. Based on us having this software bill of materials, right, imagine this utopian future where every piece of software, every piece of hardware comes with this amazing list of ingredients that someone somewhere will be reading at some point, surely, right? What do we build from that, right? Does, are we looking at a future where everyone then has to be able to look at that individually and assess their level of risk and evaluate whether or not that's something they're happy with? Or is there something that is the next stage, right? Once we've reached this utopia, we can then move to a model where you know, we automatically flag things as vulnerable. We automatically try and push this on the industry to say, if you're using outdated ones, we'll flag this in some way. And, and I don't want to say shame people into keeping their stuff up to date, but you know, effectively incentivize people to actually keep things up to date. And I think, right, this is going to hit the market in a couple of different ways. So one, you know, at the point of purchase is one of the, the great leverage points where if I'm looking at two different projects, so first, hey, this supplier has an S-bomb, this one can't. And to me, what does it say if the person who wants to sell you software can't tell you what's in it? I don't think that's a great sign. And then you can say, all right, well, let's talk about what mitigations exist and I can do some analysis. And, and I'm sure the, the third time the sales engineer has this conversation, they're going to have a good response. And so either they're going to drive things back upstream or they'll say, here's why we made this decision. Yes, we're using, and let's not even use a vulnerability. Let's use something that's end of life, right? So yes, we're using this component that's been end of life and here's why, and here's why that's okay. So they'll have some but the other model that we want to do is start to integrate this into the basic security tool suite that we have today, right? If, if we succeed at this in a few years, no one's going to be talking about SBOMs as a special concept any more than we talk about CVEs as a special concept today. It's just a data layer that we've hooked into other things. So, you know, we have asset management today. This is the next step down, right? And I need to know what I have, but... You know, how do I think about what's potentially at risk, especially for software that's made by organizations that aren't the top 20 or 50 organizations? So they're not going to have a CVE in their own right. The risk might be something that's further upstream. And that brings us kind of back around to the larger question. I mean, we, we reached out to you because you're one of the experts in SBOM in the U.S., 
but you, this is a global conversation that has to happen. This it, It's not going to be successful if it's just U.S. companies. It's not even going to be successful if it's European and, and U.S. companies. This has to be a concept that is global and runs across the globe. Um, it needs, as you mentioned, someone in, in Japan and someone in China. It needs a, a number of these different types of stakeholders actually getting actively involved Otherwise, you kind of hit a uh, hit the end of that conversation, and you're like, "Well, beyond this point, I got no idea." <laughs> uh, and and there are a number of related issues there, and it's one of the reasons why we've talked to the first community 2019 in Edinburgh. I gave a talk with Art Mannion in 2020 for for the virtual first. I gave a talk with Tomo Ito from JP Cert. Uh, who talked about how they're viewing it, and they sort of see it as integral to JP Cert's role as a coordinator. In my Black Hat talk this year is going to be the German BSI, the, the security, cybersecurity agency, um, that's uh, going to emphasize some of the advisory work they're doing with a new advisory data standard called CSAF or CSAF. It's an OASIS standard. So we're trying to build on all these pieces because, one, it has to be global, right, as you point out. And we're all facing the same problems. So in 2019, there were three different talks at first, not about SBOM, but about how large product security teams were trying to get a company-wide view of all of the different pieces of software they were using. Because again, that's something that any good product security team needs to think about is, hey, am I using this piece of software anywhere in my network? Am I shipping it anywhere? So three different companies gave a talk wrestling that particular approach. But the other thing we want to do is sort of tie this into other efforts. So how do we make sure this reflects the future of security advisories? How do we think about software identity? One of the biggest challenges we have right now is we don't have a global namespace for software. And so getting back to that Tallow example in the Twinkie, people need to actually know that Tallow is beef fat. You know, do you use com.sun.java or com.oracle.java? depends on whether you started keeping a record. And you know, we have a white paper that has some guidance on how to do software identity. The teaser is, for God's sakes, please don't invent your own string to name a piece of software. But here, and, and here are some existing data formats that you can look to. Can I roll my own crypto? <laughs> Always. That's how you get the appropriate oh, custom key length. No, no. Wrong answer. Oh, okay. Answer is never roll your own crypto. <laughs> Even for Twinkies. It's just not worth it. Especially not me, because I, a Caesar cipher would be about the limits of my capabilities. <laughs> After you've come up with this, this idea and, and companies are saying, yes, this makes sense. This is something I should implement. You know, One step before the, the RSA theme of the year is who's going to provide that solution to us, right? Because there's going to be companies out there, they're going to roll it themselves. And it's not crypto, you can roll that yourself, right? <laughs> People are going to figure out, what do I have in my repos? What am I using to build? What does this look like in our environment for varying degrees um, of difficulty? But there are going to be some companies who are just like, where's my Jenkins plugin that will just dump this list for me, right? And I'm sure they're out there. So what does that landscape look like? Is that something that you're pushing or you're... you're hoping industry is going to latch on and start pushing this? Uh, we've already seen both you know, open source projects and commercial tools uh, be more active in the space. So first, the market kind of exists to start with. We have source composition analysis. 
which traditionally has been very popular for licensing compliance. So again, for folks who are like, how will I, will I share what I'm using? Well, you kind of have to already because of a lot of open source requirements. But we also, we're starting to see more and more folks come forward to say, hey, I'm going to provide this service for specific types of software that I'm an expert in. So uh, binary analysis for industrial control system. We've got a couple of startups that are focusing on that. Containers. There, are, I just gave a talk at RSA on called What Are Clouds Made Of? Uh, really drilling into what makes this problem unique for the cloud-native uh, type of code. It's just, it's just a, other people's computers. That's, <laughs> that's all cloud is. But, you know, this woman, Nisha Kumar from VMware, has some great analogies where she said, you know, sometimes you can look at a container and think of it as a parfait. It's just layers. But sometimes it's a smoothie and everything's sort of mixed together in a black box. And that's okay if you have the right tools. And uh, one of the projects that she works on called Turn uh, helps you manage that. So... One challenge is there isn't going to be a one-size-fits-all approach for this, right? Different corners of the software ecosystem have enough different needs. But we have plugins for this. There are, you know, Maven plugins. There are tools that can do this today that fit into your existing build processes. And this is one of those areas that actually the smaller you are, a lot of security is very hard to do if you're a small organization. Uh, this is an area where the smaller and newer a company you are, the easier it is to do. And it's actually hardest for larger companies with legacy processes because it's harder to sort of shoehorn in the metadata, right? At the end of the day, this is kind of just a couple extra lines in your make file, especially to do it from a basic level. And the other area we want to think about tooling is integrating on the consumption side. So how does this fit into my vuln management, into my seam, into my data lake so that we can start to use it? And let's bring this now back to a tighter focus. Uh, it's sort of on you and your direct efforts and where it's led. On May 12th, the White House issued a um, some guidance, an executive order, and SBOM was one of the things that was listed way, way down in section four. What is the subsection? Well, whatever the subsection is, you probably know. But I was surprised to see things like SBOM and Zero Trust, and it, it does show that it wasn't just some no-name politician or, or, or one of their interns working on this, that it was actually people like you who have some stake in the, the outcomes, who have some actual expertise, rather than any of the, the um, members of uh, House or, or um, any of the members of our government who I would not necessarily trust to have anything more than a pencil sharpener and not the electric kind. <laughs> well, so I, I certainly don't want to say anything on there that would uh, get me in trouble, but I, I will say that one, right? the administration has really focused on figuring out not just how do we prioritize security, but what is sort of the actionable path forward. And there's a great line in the preamble to the executive order, which says, in the trust we place in our digital infrastructure should be proportional to how trustworthy and transparent that infrastructure is. And the consequences, if that trust will be misplaced. And so the executive order, especially section four, which deals with helping software supply chain, is drills into that. Now, the tool that we have, because right, regulation can require a lot more time and effort. The, so the tool that the U.S. government chose was the power of the purse, where we say everything the U.S. government buys will have to have certain properties. 
and the vision that you'd be thinking there is that will spill over into the private sector, right? Because people will start to, right, they're not going to have separate versions. You know, Would you like the secure version or the insecure version, ma'am? And also spill over into tools and standards so that we can all start to do this together. So it has been quite gratifying. It's a lot of work that's, that the executive order lays out in very aggressive timetables. And they're calling for a lot of things such as, you know, hey, we need better artifacts for static and da- dynamic analysis testing. You know, you need artifacts to show that your development environment is separate from your operation environment, show that you're using multi-factor, and of course, SBOM. And the task that we're required to is to say, you know, NTIA, my corner of government, is, is responsible for defining the minimum elements of SBOM. And, and then the next step is going to be for the broader U.S. government to take the, those minimum elements and say, how do we put this into things like contract language? So my, my worry with these kind of things that, that come out as a mandate and have very tight timelines is that you will find people who will implement things poorly. Right. It's 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 that we had some discussions in in the line of business that I'm in a couple of years ago, um, whether or not we should require our vendors, um, vendors who work with us and have access to sensitive data or or, or do um, sensitive work should have some kind of bug bounty program. And my pushback on the on, on that at the time was, would you rather them have no bug bounty program or implement one that doesn't work, is non-functional results in people having a bad taste in their mouth and then leaking bugs on the internet, right? Because, you know, you can't just take someone from zero to 60, right? How do you see people implementing SBOM right now? Do you think people are going to fall into that same trap? Or is it on the simpler side and therefore not necessarily something people are going to fall into a pit with? No, I think that should be the concern, right? I think healthy skepticism of government is is very important, especially in cybersecurity, where we've seen so many people just do it poorly. But I will also say that it's pretty obvious that a lot of the status quo simply is not tenable, not necessarily for the world's most elite software organizations, but certainly for the majority of organizations by count that make and sell software. And we don't really have the easy tools to separate them. And so this is about advancing that model. So for SBOM implementation, one, there is a nice long definition of what an SBOM is in the executive order itself, and including using the analogy of a list of ingredients, but also it talks about it's defined functionally, right? It says SBOMs are useful for the people who make the software because you need to know what you're shipping, and it's useful for people who are using them, and it also is useful at the time of acquisition. So it lays out some of the use cases intrinsically. So that gives us a starting point. One of the things we're going to be have to understand moving forward is how do you have flexibility? Because, as I said, there, there is a real difference between what this is going to look like for classic enterprise software on a platter, what this is going to look like for a SaaS model, um, where, right, I've got a minutely build, and so what's the information that the customer needs, versus an embedded system where, hey, this thing is going to be out in the world for 20 years and we need to, you know, and, and how's the data going to be accessed, for example. I, I may not want my vulnerability scanner crawling all over my OT network or my, you know, hospital room, uh, local network. And so, you know, figuring out ways that we can get the data around is going to be key as well. I just had a nightmare flash through my head of the complexities of edge computing and, and actually having it out there at the Google or Akamai or other servers where it's literally a hop away from the customer uh, the, uh, surfing the web 
And now how do you have that software bill of materials when you may be having random software run by a, a company that is not the person who is actually running the, the edge um, computing. Oh, my brain hurts now. But, and, and right. We are working on some of those challenging cases and the pun intended here is the edge cases, but the challenge is right. The flip side is what does it say if you have a high, a more high assurance case and you don't have that data or you can't even contemplate how that data would end up in the, in the hands of someone who's empowered to make a risk-based decision. Extension to that would be extensible platforms, right? So I'm thinking of software as a service, things like Salesforce and SAP and things like that, where, where effectively you, the base platform may have a software bill of materials, but then every single thing that you t- attach onto it is going to need an, a secondary SBOM at that point. And you're just kind of growing it based on what you're using as extensions. I, I like that model. I think that's a really good way of thinking about it. And again, the flip side, we've, we've tried to understand this from a market perspective, uh, right? I, I am from the Department of Commerce. And so, you know, we, we like markets. And so a lot of it is to say, let's consider both the supply side and the demand side. And similarly, on the SaaS world, it's not just how do we supply it? Because everyone says, well, it's a lot of data, right? These you know, Salesforce is giant. Yeah, but again, it's a computer. But the, one of the key questions is going to be, who is going to be using that data? And what does that decision process look like? Probably you're not going to have someone who every hour is going to say, can I still use giant SaaS provider? Uh, but you may want to say, hey, before we sign the end-year contract, we're going to want to talk to you about this and ask you a couple questions based on what our security analysis is of your, your build. And I think that that entering into U.S. government executive orders is a huge hurdle for for SBOM as a, an idea as a, a, a as a real security measure. Is entering into things like HIPAA or PCI or uh, FedRAMP the next step? Is is that when you consider success? Do you consider this a success, um, or do you consider this just a starting point? Uh, well, let's see. I, I know that if I utter the term FedRAMP, a whole bunch of friends are just going to wake up in the middle of the night with the heebie-jeebies. But the, uh, you know, I think our mission has always been to say, what can we do to promote this across the ecosystem? And we started off as sort of a voluntary model, right? At NTIA, we pulled together experts from around the world, from different communities. But government's going to government. And, you know, even from the beginning... For example, for medical devices, the FDA had said, hey, we want S-bombs for, you know, blinking boxes that keep people alive. And in part, they wanted that because there was a congressional report on medical device security. And it's abysmal state, especially following the WannaCry malware. And, um, you know, folks that some of your listeners are going to know, people like Josh Corman have been saying, you know, this is really important, especially for critical infrastructure. And so getting into getting it to that next level is always going to be important. So the initial work happened from the community in a voluntary approach. And now that we have some of the basics saying, all right, well, let's get the basics implemented. And similarly, at the, the, the bleeding edge is still going to happen at the innovation level, at the voluntary innovation level. As more tools come forward, as more customers say, you know, we, we care about security more than other people, so we want better stuff. And, and we'll, we're going to see progress on that way. So it's going to be, you know, the, 
I call what I do agile policymaking in that we try to have these tight feedback loops and always find new ways of advancing without leaving behind, uh, you know, large swaths. So what's the, the industry response been like on this, right? I mean, do, do you have companies queuing up around the block to say, this is an amazing idea, let's get this done? Or, or do you see people dragging their feet on this and saying, well, I'll do it because you told me I have to? Are they seeing the benefits? Uh, a little of both. We definitely hear a lot of great stories about the benefits. So, um, you know, I've talked to the head of product security of uh, a major ICS vendor, industrial control system vendor. And this person said, hey, if we had this already, it would save us thousands of hours a year because, right, we, we want this. And so, and they're working on building this. We've talked to other large manufacturers who say, hey, this is important, but it's hard, right? It's hard to bring together all the different parts of us. One uh, head of product security for a, a very large software vendor has said, hey, we know we need this. They've done the math and were able to show that the, the bugs that they used to fix used to be developed by their engineers. Now the bugs that their team is spending all their time working on come from further upstream, come from open source or come from you know, acquisitions and things like that. But the same head of product security said, we, we want this from our upstream suppliers, but we'll give it to our downstream suppliers when someone makes us. And I think that I, I understand that, right? No one has ever said, don't tell me more about what I'm about to buy. But the, the, the slight amount of extra work that it's going to take to get this uh, will require, I think, uh, nudges. Some of those nudges will also come from the marketplace. So the Edison Electric Institute, which is a uh, trade association of utilities in the United States, electric utilities in the United States, wrote some guidance that says, hey, everyone should ask for an SBOM when you buy stuff to put on your network. And people seem to like that. And they started asking. And then some manufacturers countered by saying, hey, when you say give us an SBOM, what do you mean? And so this is where you start to need some more clear definitions. And that's, I think, what the White House has asked us to provide is saying, hey, we have the understanding of SBOM. We've been talking about it for a few years. Let's move this into something that's specific enough that we can actually put into the marketplace. So I have to ask, what's with the six foot slide rule behind you? The, the, obviously the listeners can't see, but there's a six foot slide rule up against your walls behind you. Uh, so yes, that is a, a pedagogical slide rule. I, I wish I could claim credit for finding it. My father found it and said, hey, do you, do you want this? And I said, oh, that'd be a fun project. Uh, and I was gonna sort of hook it up to a Raspberry Pi in the wall so it could you know, do arbitrary calculations. And I forgot about one thing, which is, you know, it's one thing to program a Raspberry Pi to calculate on a slide rule. It's another thing to actually build the gearing system that can move a 40 pound piece of wood back and forth by itself. Um, and, and I'm not that kind of engineer. And then what would the S-bomb look like for that project? <laughs> one of the things I love is how many people who are involved in the S-bomb community say, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drink my own champagne. And so uh, some good folks at CertCC have written an SBOM translator. Well, it will take from one format and, and spit it out another one. And there's an SBOM for that project. Someone wrote uh, for the supply chain sandbox for RSA, they wrote a, uh, a game that uh, you know, asks you sort of uh, all sorts of supply chain trivia and they wrote an SBOM for that. So, right, and, you know, more and more folks are realizing, you know, again, especially in the open source world, this isn't that hard. Just, it just needs to be normalized, right? You, yeah. you just need to, if this is, 
if this comes as default as part of your make file, then this is this is a success, right? So how how do you take that step and get that as a default into things? That's I guess the next step, right? That is, and and part of it is aligning the tools. Uh, on June twenty second, we're going to have our second plug fest where we're going to take the commercial tools and the open source tools and have a very uh, a fixed set of, of targets and sort of show, hey, all of these can produce similar. Here's where they produce slightly different ones and make sure that the data formats that we use are interoperable. And, and again, a lot of it is also just going to say, hey, people, people asking for it, whether it's part of a government requirement or part of the marketplace. I, I wanted to I wanted to ask how you feel whether or not SBOM would have had a, an impact on on recent recent breaches, shall we say, uh, of of certain software vendors. It, what kind of impact do you think having SBOM five years down the road, same thing happens? SBOM is more well established. How different do you see this being on the notification side versus on the detection side, or is this purely from a you know if if, if I have SBOM, I know I'm affected because I have this data. Where do you see SBOM, you know, giving people the benefit there? I think, right, this is a question a lot of, you know, hey, does this affect, you know, the, the solar wind? Does it prevent it? And, and the short answer is no, um, right? The attack on the tools themselves is a separate layer. But there are a couple of responses. Second, um, one of the things that is actually kind of unique about solar wind as a piece of software is it was very seldom white box. It was very seldom repackaged. That's very rare. Even in the network management space, the vast majority of software out there is packaged and repackaged and used and reused. And so um, in most cases, when we see an attack like this going forward, an SBOM will not help you necessarily detect it, but it will. once someone has done the hard work of saying we found the badness, it will help everyone uh, respond quickly. It's that magical resilience that we all know we need. And then the second piece is moving forward as we think about the future of detection and prevention of this kind of attack that goes after supply chain tools. That's where SBOM is the starting point, right? It is necessary but not sufficient. And one of the things that we're that the community is slowly working on is saying, okay, well, we have semantic data for software components today because we have vulnerability databases. How do we make sure that this is modular enough so that we can start to layer on, I use this build tool, I use these compiler flags, I had this set of conditions. And, and folks are working on that today. Uh, there's a lot of great work that's happening in, in the cloud native computing world. Google just released the Salsa framework. But I think the other thing to acknowledge is those aren't things that we can necessarily ask every organization to implement today. Whereas SBOM is something that if, if we can't ask everyone to do pretty darn soon, we're going to have a lot of problems getting to the point where uh, we can implement the more ambitious stuff. And, and just to give you a level of deniability, Alan, I, I want to say that any opinions about the complexity of pencil sharpeners, either electric or manual, are purely my own and are not the responsibility of you Chris is a different issue. Um, he's responsible for all of it and, and can't get away with it. But <laughs> you are not the one who made any statements about pencil sharpeners. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm, well, I'm, I'm a pen and ink guy anyway. I mean, I was going to edit that out, but now, now it's definitely <laughs> going to stay in. I mean, how can I, how can I get rid of that speech? As CEO of pencil sharpeners, this is, this is my bag. Is there anything you really want people to know that we just have forgotten to talk about? 
Uh, well, the other thing to remember is that this is an open issue. So if anyone wants to learn more, um, you can go to ntia.gov slash SBOM. And by the way, I'm really proud of that URL. That may be one of the shortest and easy to, most easy to remember URL of any cybersecurity initiative in the world. So ntia.gov slash SBOM, government-run uh, cybersecurity initiative. Okay, yeah. um, and ntia.gov slash SBOM. And if you'd like to learn more, please shoot me an email. My info's on that website. We'd love to have you participate. Uh, this is stuff that you know we're still working on and advancing and, and need as many people to uh, roll up their sleeves as possible. It's been uh, a wonderful time talking to you. It's been too long since we've caught up. So uh, let's not leave it too long again. Hopefully you can come back and give us an update when SBOM is a success and everyone has it implemented and it's just, it's just there, right? It's like a standard. You can say you knew about it when. Yes, I remember back when we didn't have the S-bombs. So, great. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to chat. I really appreciate it. And uh, we hope to be catching up with you at one of the first conferences live and in person, hopefully. If not, there is an online version of the first conference coming up very soon. So I encourage people to uh, dial in, remotely participate, and uh, enjoy. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the First Impressions podcast and thanks to this week's guest. You can find Chris John Riley on Twitter at Chris John Riley, all one word. You can find me, Martin McKay, on Twitter at MCKEAY. And you can find the first organization at first.org, F I R S T D O T O R G. You can also find more information about First and the First Impressions podcast at first.org. Thanks again for listening.